Hey everyone, welcome back. This is episode 21 of Collapse Talk. This is your host, Gabriel, and let's dive right in. So, these past couple of days, I've been taking it easy uh, for my last episode. As I said, I had a little operation, nothing too serious. So, you know, it was just a taking it easy and just resting, which, you know, I had a lot of time to record, but I was just taking the time to just think on my next steps and where to take this program because I think I'm doing well but at the same time it's more just you know okay where's the next step you know I'm trying to improve obviously so yeah I'm going to make some more changes I'm trying to make this more streamlined um, of course uh, I was trying to be more like guerrilla radio um, you know forget the rules all that but you know if I'm going to take this more mainstream or I guess you know taking this more seriously I'm going to have to uh, follow some rules and you know try to streamline this but you know it's still going to be my program and uh, just me talking really so yeah so we're going to discuss really as the thesis of the show and just reality around this uh, indicates uh, you know the collapse the current collapse domestically internationally and also with the natural world so there's a lot to unpack obviously and there's going to be some things that i'm going to miss probably some things i'm going to get wrong again but yeah we'll just talk about it so internationally you know we've had uh some waves of protest around the world it seems you know we have unrest here in our world our place but there's a uh, protest movements that are occurring that have pretty uh, large implications um so i'll discuss first with nigeria given that nigeria is one of the more affluent and influential nations in west africa or just africa as a whole i mean nigerians are i mean not that i've met too many the ones i have met they've been very educated and industrious you know the wealth you know all this stuff so there are certainly is certainly a country that has a lot going for it. Not that it's perfect, obviously, as we're going to see here. Yeah, so we've had protests, and yesterday, Tuesday, there was an incident of soldiers opening fire on the protesters, um, largely peaceful protesters. I mean, again, it's still a commotion, so it's probably some bad actors. But yeah, so they, what has been reported is that these. Um, protesters were targeted and that the police and military had basically removed uh, any like security surveillance or they removed some of the lights that there was some coordination involved so I'll, t- I'll i'll be quoting from nbc um in their article uh quote uh, nigeria witnessed scenes of violence and chaos as protests calling for the end of police brutality continued overnight and into wednesday Despite a 24-hour curfew and multiple eyewitness reports of soldiers opening fire on protesters, Lagos State Governor Babajide said Wednesday that one person had died at a hospital in Lagos, the country's financial capital, after a shooting in the upmarket suburb of Lekki on Tuesday, but did not confirm whether the victim was a protester. Quote, This is an isolated case. We are still investigating if he was a protester, he said on Twitter. Earlier, he said 30 uh, people were being treated for, quote, mild to moderate injuries. Of these, two were receiving intensive care and three had been discharged. 
Nigerian President Mahmadu, or Mahamadu Buhari appealed for calm in a statement Wednesday. So we'll continue onward. Uh, protests in Lagos turned violent Tuesday after a three-day, 24-hour curfew was announced and anti-riot forces deployed, with scores hospitalized after authorities moved to clamp down on protesters in the Aleki area. Human rights organization Amnesty International in Nigeria said in a statement it had received credible but disturbing evidence of excessive use of force, occasioning deaths of protesters at Leki Tollgate in Lagos. Thousands of Nigerians in the oil-rich country have taken to the streets nationwide every day for nearly two weeks, demanding the shutdown of a police unit, the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, SARS, SARS, which they hold responsible for years of brutality, extortion, and harassment in the West African country, end quote. So, yeah, there was a, so they were protesting this specific squad, and there's a the hashtag, and NSARS, N-S-A-R-S. So this is a particular unit that is going around harassing locals. Uh, it is interesting to see that this is a, uh, more of a police brutality protest, um, and you know, of course, as you know, the police operate around the world, and as we're saying, you know, police brutality is more of a human issue now, because we like to pretend it's an American issue, but we're seeing the same problems here. So it's interesting. I mean, not to you know, because I don't want to target Black Lives Matters too much, but you know, you don't really see it happening here, because I mean, everybody's black here. I mean, it's you know. So it's interesting. So if BLM had focused more on the class issue rather than the race issue, I think they would have had more success because, you know, I'm starting to really have like second thoughts about them, honestly. But it's in, you know, you see like the NFAC, you know, when I first kind of saw it, I was just like, okay, well, they're expressing their Second Amendment rights. But then you hear, uh, their leader, Grandmaster Jay, and you're just like, what? Like, so, yeah. And of course, you can't really talk about that. You can't really, uh, you can't really insinuate that there's such a thing as black supremacy. But, you know, that's uh, the state of affairs today. But regardless, I'm talking more about this uh, situation in Nigeria, where you have young people, students, anti-corruption, protesters. Very interesting situation. But yeah, so what they're saying is that Reading from uh, a quote, actually, so around 3 p.m. Tuesday, he, uh, he, and I'm um, actually, let me move back further. Okay. I'm sorry, here we go. So he being Eti Inyene Godwin Akpan, 26, a local photojournalist who was at the protest at the toll gate before the Lucky Bridge and witnessed the events. So Akpan, right? Akpan said, he saw bridge workers near the toll gate take down security cameras and switch off street lighting, which raised his suspicions. Hours later, Akpan said Nigerian military in a uniform arrived and within seconds began shooting at the crowd. They came down and they started shooting, he said. It was very, very scary. Uh, Akpan said many fled in panic while he ran to hide in his car, watching as officers destroyed phones and cameras belonging to the protesters. He eventually escaped but said he was at least three he saw at least three dead bodies as he was fleeing the scene fearing he too he, he too could be shot i'm kind of traumatized he said so yeah this is a 
pretty serious situation. I'm seeing this more on social media. I could be wrong. Um, a lot of, uh, I mean, you know, you have like folks like John Boyega, a very uh, affluent, influential Nigerian act, uh, actors and figures are certainly expressing this and talking about it. So yeah, so this is definitely a situation that's occurring in Africa and an ever-evolving situation. Who knows where this can go? And Nigeria's all, or in the past. Uh, had been facing unrest with Boko Haram and those actions there. So this is just another angle, another thing that's going to destabilize the region. Well, who knows how far this will go, honestly. So that's that, that's happening there. Another situation in Africa I wanted to speak on is a prison break in the Democratic Republic of Congo where the an Islamist group, the ADF, the ADF being the Allied Democratic Forces, attacked the prison and released or uh, helped uh, 1,300 inmates, they're saying, to escape. And largely those inmates being their own uh, fighters and uh, supporters. So yeah, more than, uh, so I'm reading this from BBC, so more than 1,300 prisoners have escaped from a jail in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo's Beni City, after suspected Islamist rebels attacked the facility, officials have said. The Allied Democratic Forces, ADF, was thought to have launched the assault to free its members, the mayor said. Only about 100 inmates remain in the Kangbayi prison, the mayor said. The ADF has, was formed more than 20 years ago in neighboring Uganda to fight alleged discrimination against Muslims. It relocated to eastern Congo, or eastern DR Congo, after being driven out from its bases by the Ugandan military. So yes, it's a, you know, one of these paramilitary rebel groups, and they attack this town, releasing their prisoners and supporters. Uh, just another situation in the Congo. But yeah, I just found that really interesting, like, because I, I, I read a notification, and I just, I didn't see that it said DR Congo. It just said, like, a militia group attacked prison, 13 inmates escaped so i'm just like oh shit i thought it was like either here or in mexico or something like that but i mean that's uh something that i am worried about because there are like prisons right outside my town so i mean it's a far out thought because honestly like this town is super armed and they have military and police out here there's, there's a lot of them here but it's still something to think about you know just over there, maximum security, you know, child rapists, uh, murderers, like really bad people. <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, this, of course, happening in, you know, Africa is just interesting to see. Not necessarily, in, not necessarily collapse related, but just a, a interesting turn of events and, uh, you know, 13,000, 1,300 uh, inmates, I mean, that's a, you know, if they were able to recruit them into their forces, I mean, that's a pretty significant surge of reinforcements, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens there. But right now, Africa is going through a lot. These are just like the two stories that kind of stood out to me. But I wanted to circle back with the protests that are happening, and I want to target on Southeast Asia. So, as we saw, we, we have the omnibus bill that occurred with um, Indonesia, 
you know, pro-worker movement, student movement, environmental regulations and such. So that was a, those riots, they were pretty significant and uh, protests there. So here in Thailand, this is more of a pro-democracy pro movement, uh, trying to rein in the powers of the monarchy because Thailand is a monarchy. Actually, Thailand is um, next to Ethiopia, uh, next to Japan. Yeah, I'm trying to think who else. I just know, I know Thailand and Japan. I, I mean, Ethiopia was able to resist colonial uh, powers. It's just, you know, they got overpowered in World War II. But my point is just Thailand was never colonized. They remained independent. So they're, they were uh, at their own monarchy and their own kingdom. So, so it's interesting to see how it's um, unfolding now. Um, so I'm reading from CNN, quote, uh, Thailand's government has vowed to protect the monarchy after tens of thousands of pro-democracy protesters rallied in Bangkok and other cities over the weekend. As calls for a new constitution and curbing the king's powers continue to grow, demonstrators again defied an emergency decree banning public gatherings of more than five people and hit the streets en masse for a fifth straight day on Sunday, with about 10,000 people surrounding Bangkok's Victory Monument in the heart of the capital and blocking traffic around one of the city's main business centers. Speaking to reporters at Government House on Monday, Prime Minister Prayut, or Prayut sorry, Chan Ocha said he supports the idea of Parliament holding an emergency session to find a way out of the current political crisis, but said the government must protect the, go the monarchy. The government has been doing its best to compromise. All I ask is to avoid destroying governmental and public properties. As we saw yesterday, there was an incident. There is a scuffle among protesters. I would argue them to be extra careful, Prayut said, adding that an urgent parliamentary meeting could be discussed among cabinet members on Tuesday. Quote, the thing the government must do is to protect the monarchy. This is the duty for all Thai citizens to perform, Prayut continued. I would call for peaceful protests. The government has reasonably given in. We are avoiding using force as much as we can. Thailand's anti-government movement is growing bolder, and several anti-monarchy hashtags trending on social media in recent days are now being chanted on Bangkok streets, but protesters are risking lengthy prison sentences by breaking long-standing taboos against criticizing the monarchy. Already, prominent protest leaders have been arrested on charges such as sedition, which could lead to seven years behind prison. On Friday, two activists were arrested on charges of attempting violence against the Queen after her motorcade was obstructed by anti-government crowds. The pair face a possible life sentence. End quote. So, yeah, these are pretty strict um, sedition laws that they have here. And they're also, um, you know, reigning in. They're like media outlets and they have a commission of basically a ministry of truth. You know, they're, they're, they're really trying to rein this in. You know, these are like, this is almost um, like the Hong Kong protests. I mean, they're they're basically like brothers in arms. You know, some of these uh, pro subreddits and forums, you see they're, you know, their allies are, you know, they're trying to coordinate together. But yeah, pro-democracy, uh, very much a youth rebellion. There's a lot of young people in this crowd. And they're all doing like the, um, the Katniss Everdeen salute with the three fingers. So it's kind of interesting to see. But... Yeah, these people are out. They're out there. 
Um, you know, they, they just want, because it's an absolute monarchy, they, they want some form of constitution or, or maybe I could be wrong on the absolute monarchy part because there's also a bit of a military junta as well. So, yeah, this is, um, yeah, the current king, uh, supposedly his father, the last king, was this like humble statesman and he was like a good leader and such, but this king, he's more of a playboy. Uh, apparently he, he had, he was like locked away in Germany with all these concubines. I mean, that's a way to live, but you know, do right by your people and then do what you want. You know, that's, you know, that, that's basically it. But yes, they want to at least have some kind of constitutional monarchy just to rein in the powers. But yeah, that's what we're seeing here in Thailand. So I'll be interested to see what happens there. There has been violence in the past um, with, or there's violence already occurring. But there's been, I've seen some pretty intense footage. I saw like, not to get graphic, but um, I saw one uh, footage where there was a protest, you know, march, and then the snipers opened fired, and one of the uh, demonstrators got shot in the head, and like, it, it's really graphic, but his brain, his skull basically like exploded, and his brain fell out onto the street. It was really, really graphic. But, I mean, that's how, that's, the the government is not playing around, you know, they're, they're I mean, they, they have a lot of tourism, so they're trying to appeal to the Western tourism and such, and, but, like, if their people start acting up, they're going to crack down on that, so, you know, this is um, something to, to keep an eye on, so, yeah, so we had some protests there, and there's others around the world, I mean, there's a protest also in Chile, you know, celebrating their uprising in 2019, uh, just just a lot of uh, a lot of unrest and a lot of movement. Just a, I mean, well, again, I think November is going to see we're going to see a lot, a lot more demonstrations and a lot more unrest worldwide. I mean, who 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 knows what's going to happen? Because this is this is like the you know when you're boiling right. This is like those those small little bubbles that you see on the the bottom of the pan. I mean, the, they say not to like stare at a, a bowl when it's uh, you're trying to boil it. But if you if you you know see before those bubbles and before that heat and steam comes, there's like small little bubbles that form at the bottom. I think that's what the stage that we're at. Even with even with all the unrest that's been occurring, like we haven't seen the worst of it, honestly. So that's the protests that are occurring. I wanted to talk about also, um, as we mentioned a lot, you know, we keep our eye on China here, particularly with Taiwan. I don't know what China thinks is going to happen if they really try to invade Taiwan. Like, this is not, what, what are they, they're going to lose. Like, well, I mean, I'm not saying that they're not, they have a pretty good chance of overpowering Taiwan, but it's just the, it, the losses are just going to be, it's not worth it. Like, why? Why? So, yeah, so what what happened is in Taiwan, I mean, they've been violating their airspace, you know, they're preparing, I mean, they have coastal preparations for an invasion, it's, it, like, they could just, they could do it tomorrow, they really could, like, that's how tight it is, so Taiwan recently, or the United States recently sold weapons to Taiwan, these air-to-ground missiles that... China is not happy about. They're called Slam ER, uh, made from Boeing, 
air-to-surface missiles. And essentially, you know, because it's a small island nation. It's a small island nation, but with this, our technology now, as long as you have the, uh, the, you know, it's like the Israel of the East, if you want to think about it. <laughs> That's actually a great analogy. So, yeah, they're, they're a small nation state, but they got the best equipment, best training, like they, so it will be quite the fight. But, but I want to read, um, from Nikki Asia, uh, of just this weapons sale and the implications of it. So, quote, the White House's approval last week of advanced arms sales to Taiwan is a sign that the United States is putting muscle behind its focal support for the island's defense against Chinese aggression. The sales include SLAM-ER air-to-ground missiles, drones, and a, coast- and a coastal defense missile system. According to analysts, the-, the equipment will immediately boost Taiwan's capability to counter several Chinese attack scenarios. Reuters cited an unidentified official saying the sales are valued at around $5 billion. If Congress approves the deal, a near formality given bipartisan support for Taiwan's defense, the U.S. will have sold around $17.5 billion in weapons to Taiwan during President Trump's four years in office. Beijing consistently opposes U.S. arms sales to Taiwan, which the Chinese Communist Party considers part of its territory, despite never having ruled it, but the particular weapons being sold make up a diverse, offense-ready package that experts, experts say could indicate a shift in U.S. military strategy and could provoke China even more than usual. White House officials have internally discussed ending Washington's policy of strategic ambiguity, according to the Financial Times. The U.S. currently refuses to publicly divulge whether it would provide military support to Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. The arms cell, however, sends their own message. The Boeing-made long-range SLAM-ER air-to-ground missiles could be used in a counter-strike directed at Chinese mainland targets or, theoretically, even in a first strike. It's not a defensive weapon, said Dennis Huang, an an assistant professor of political science at Sam Houston State University, hey, go Bearcats, who has researched Taiwan's military capabilities, the U.S. is trying to send a stronger signal. So, yeah, so they're, uh, they're getting these weapons. They're, you know, they're not trying to be offensive, but if they have to make a first strike, they're going to make, uh, they're, they're really going to try to be as precise and devastating as possible, you know. So uh, that would be an interesting situation if Taiwan struck first. You know, like I said, Israel, right? Israel of the East. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I also read here in this article that they they made this analogy. Let me try to find it. Ah, okay. So, um, quote, military officials and experts in both the U.S. and Taiwan have long called for Taipei to develop such capabilities to withstand Chinese aggression. U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien said earlier this month, that Taiwan should become like a military porcupine, adding that lions generally don't like to eat porcupines. So that's the strategy that they're trying to use, you know, trying to get the best equipment, the best weapons, the best training as possible, so that an invasion, because, you know, you're going to invade, but you have to also occupy it, right? And they're, you know, they're just not going to, it's not going to be worth it, right? But of course, China wants... Uh, the United States to stop uh, selling weapons and stop, I mean, yeah, stop doing business with uh, Taiwan. 
it's it's interesting because whether or not we get into a hot war with China, a war with Taiwan and China seems like far more likely. Like it, sadly, because you know China is trying to. I mean, they're trying to dominate the world. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they don't seem like they're backing down. They really don't. It's um, it's very concerning, right? So, yeah. But it's also interesting, right, because we have Taiwan, but then we also have all the all these other allies in Asia. I don't think it's it, – you're not really going to find, like, Vietnam even. They're not even – they're you know, we could definitely use them in the fight against China. So it would be this coalition of Asian countries and and being supported by the United States, right? Who knows? I mean, I don't believe that there's like this pan-Asian alliance against China, but they're certainly, you know, kind of like, okay, like we're okay, we're, we're going to fight this. Okay. You know, so you know, as we've seen in the South China Sea, they're trying to exert their power I mean, there was another incident where naval vessels were, you know, telling these uh, U.S. Navy ships to get out. Like, they're they're really, really ramping this up. I, I don't know what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish with this. So, yeah. So, Asia, Taiwan, and China, just keeping an, an eye on that. But, you know, it, it, it really feels like any day now they're going to try to do something. You know, it, it's just... Yeah, very tense. And this is something that, again, that goes under people's radars. This is not something, I mean, they say Taiwan, and they're like, what? Like, yeah, so, again, this is what's happening there. So, weapon cell. But another uh, conflict that's been, you know, that doesn't seem to have any end in sight, really. You know, give the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. They um the last episode that I did, there was a peace talk that they had, and they obviously violated violated it, and they they don't seem to be stopping. Right? They're accusing each other of breaking the ceasefires within minutes. That's I mean, so it's just like they sign a piece of paper, but then in the field, it's an entire entirely different reality. Right? Um, so written is from NPR, quote. Fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region took another turn on Sunday, with the two countries accusing each other of violating the latest ceasefire just minutes after it took effect. The tiny region in the South Caucasus has been the site of hundreds of military and civilian deaths, significant property destruction, and inflamed tension since violence, violence broke out between the two countries in late September, intensifying a decades-long conflict. Nagorno-Karabakh is internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but governed by ethnic Armenians as a de facto independent state. A humanitarian ceasefire brokered by Russia initially took effect on October 10th and was met almost immediately by allegations of truce violations from both sides. Azerbaijan accused Armenia of trying to attack its petroleum pipelines, while Armenians countered that Azerbaijan was still trying to seize the disputed territory. Exactly one week later, Armenia and Azerbaijan issued identical statements agreeing to a humanitarian truce, effective October 18th at midnight local time. They said the decision was based on statements by the President of France, 
Russia, and the United States, which make up the OSCE Minsk Group that has worked to resolve the conflict since 1992, but both sides say the fresh ceasefire did not last long. A spokesman for Armenia's defense ministry tweeted that Azerbaijan had violated the agreement after four minutes by firing artillery shells to the north and rockets to the south. Azerbaijan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said in a statement that Armenian forces started firing at the Jebrail region two minutes later or after the truce was supposed to take effect and continued its attack throughout the morning. So, yeah, both sides are pointing the fingers. It's like the Spider-Man meme, just like, you violated it. No, you did. So, yeah, this, you know, as I said, there are... I don't know how this is going to end up. You know, if this doesn't get under control, this could really uh, escalate into something, you know. And there's another, because you look at the map and I was talking about Armenia being sandwiched between Azerbaijan and Turkey. And Turkey is certainly a rogue nation at the moment. But there was another aspect that I completely overlooked that this region is also bordering along Iran. And I saw a, a clip where... This normal family, right, in the Ar- Iranian countryside, they're they're standing on the balcony, and there's the border, like, that, not even, like, just right, right over there, just, like, maybe, like, five miles at best, right, in this hill country area. And the Ar- Armenians and Azerbaijan, Ar- Azerbaijanis, on their side of the border are fighting, and you see their hillsides being exploded, and, I mean, it's it's really close. It's very close. I mean, the person was on the balcony recording and you, see, you hear their kill, children screaming, but it's like, you know, this is life there. I mean, they're surrounded by warfare. And the aspect that I didn't look into was if in the event of an Iranian intervention or not even an intervention, it's just the, they're part of the equation because, you know, fighting on this border can easily spill over to their side and who knows what could happen there, Right. Again, this era, you know, yeah, we just really have to pay attention here. Because I said, you know, this is like, you you see this area and it's like this, it's at this cornerstone of all these different world, world powers. So you have Iran, Turkey, and Russia, right? And Turkey being a NATO ally also drags in all these other, you know, the United States and all these other uh, countries. So like, this is really something that, if it doesn't resolve itself soon, could escalate and get out of control. And who knows what can happen after that? You know, because I talk about World War Three, you know, but you know, it's at the same time, it's just like the the alliances that we think are that we have aren't really what they are. You know, it's not like we're going to be very surprised who picks what side. You know, that's that's the level of yeah, that's where, that's where we're at, essentially, geopolitically, because people are going to make alliances that we did not see coming, right? So, we'll have to see there. But these people in these areas are unfortunately facing a conflict, and, you know, just these couple of weeks, already hundreds have been killed, civilians. Armenia did launch a strike against civilian populations, Again, though, there were military targets in those populations, so who knows if the Azerbaijanis were using them as tar- uh, shields, right? 
because that that is a strategy that's used but yeah this is what's happening so armenia azerbaijan keeping an eye on there but doesn't seem like there's going to be peace for any time anytime soon if they're violating the ceasefire minutes afterwards right so that's what's happening there i wanted to talk also about an incident that occurred in france and it concerns the the beheading and assassination of a french teacher samuel patty and you know i'm i'm a free speech advocate you know i'm also an atheist so this issue is going to be very touchy right cuz and i'm I, yeah and i'm not a cultural relativist either as you know even though i do uh try to be understanding of people's beliefs and cultures but you know this this is a line that shouldn't be like even debated right like it shouldn't be debated that people deserve to die because of a cartoon even if you find it offensive like you know like yeah look i understand how devoted people can be with their religions but this is the issue that occurs people feel like they are driven to defend their faith's honor or it, it, it's just people go to lengths to justify doing atrocious acts because as we're as we'll discuss onward um th this is a pretty intense situation so i'm reading this from the guardian right uh quote a parent accused of organizing a campaign against a the history teacher decapitated outside his school near Paris last week exchanged text messages and phone calls with the killer, French media have reported. Citing police sources, Europe One Radio said investigators had uncovered traces of several text messages between the father of a pupil at the school and the 18-year-old killer in the days leading up to Samuel Petty's death last Friday, along with phone conversations. The father had posted his telephone number on Facebook with the video in which he called for Patty, 47, to be fired after the teacher showed pupils two caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad alongside other cartoons as part of a discussion on free speech. Patty was stabbed and beheaded outside of his secondary school in conflans saint honorine about 20 miles northwest of Paris by Abdullah Anzarov, a of Chechen descent, who was shot dead by police soon afterwards. French authorities, authorities said on Tuesday a well-known mosque in northern Paris sub suburb would be closed as part of their clampdown on Islamist groups and suspected extremists as a result of the killing. So, yeah, so this teacher giving a free speech seminar or lesson showed what he said was two characters of caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad. I don't know what those images are. I, I yeah, so I can't really say if they were offensive or, I mean here's the thing like because <laughs> it could you could just have an image of an arab guy i mean who because who knows what muhammad looks like but like if you even like just you've just had a random character you could have a stick figure and you could say oh this is muhammad <laughs> and you might get somebody after you like because they like any depiction is a violation right it's, uh, look, man, like, 
you can just ignore it. You know, ignore it. <laughs> that that's that, that doesn't pro doesn't process their minds of okay, well, this guy is doing something I don't like, but I'll just ignore it. You know, no, they they resort to beheading and shouting Allah Akbar, like. You know, so this is this is exactly why people are having a hard time with, like, you know, this is where they talk about Sharia law and this and that. Like, they do have a real point because you know you see places such as in France and also in England where you have groups that they don't really identify with the values of the country. You know, and they don't they don't they don't care for it. And if they had it their way, they would make a lot of changes, right? You know, I'm not for religious persecution, but at the same time, we do need to combat religious fundamentalism and extremism. We like we can't let that fester. We can't let that. That's a real thing, you know. But the way you don't go about doing that is targeting them, right? Like it's a balance. Like you can't just say like, look, like you can't say, oh, your faith, we can't allow it, and you know, get out of here, and but. You know, yeah, it's it's interesting, but you know, France is very big on their secular values, um, and this is um, just another inc incident of Islamist terrorism. You know, they've uh, you know the Charlie Hebdo attacks, the uh, the why why is this skipping my name? But the um, the attack, the terror attacks that occurred. I mean, they just they, yeah, it's a very like we talk about. Islamic terrorism here, they're living it. This is a real thing for them. So, yeah, and also I was reading, because I guess there's tensions now, I was reading also um, about two Arab women being stabbed at the Eiffel Tower because they got into a confrontation with these uh, French women uh, about their dogs. I don't know, it was like something petty and then escalated and two of them got stabbed. Like, it's just, hold up, like, France is in a very tight situation racially and religiously as well i mean yeah yeah i mean again I'll, I'll continue on with this right so right before the attack the mosque which has about 1500 followers had reportedly re reposted one of the father's videos on facebook amid a fierce online campaign against the teacher in the school led by the father of the pupil who had not herself attended the lesson the education minister, Jean-Michel Blanquet, said on Tuesday, Patty would be posthumously granted France's highest on award, the Légion d'Honneur. A national ceremony will be held at the Sorbonne, or Sorbonne uh, University in Paris on Wednesday. Um, let me go a little further. But what they're revealing actually is that the... So there was a parent, right of a student and that they're saying that the student wasn't even there so it's like what but the student informed the father about the lesson and the depiction of Muhammad and then the father went out on this campaign and you know trying to get this guy fired and and he talked with the you know the 18 year old who killed this man this uh, teacher I mean you know it's like like, I'm not bold enough to depict anything about Muhammad, you know, not because out of fear is more out of respect, because I understand that. I'm just like, okay, this is just out of respect. But, however, I keep saying but, I need to say however more. 
However, you can't kill people for something that you're offended by. You can't do that. You know, you can't do that. It doesn't and you know they they issued basically a fatwa against him. I mean they they have yeah. Anyway, so that's what's happening there, and we're probably going to see more demonstrations and more unrest because of this, because. You know, Emmanuel Macron is seen as more of a, a centrist person, but, you know, with, they're going to have new elections coming up, and this is certainly going to be something that the far right is in the nationalist. They're going to definitely talk about that. So, yeah, so Samuel Paddy beheaded, brutally assassinated, executed, actually, I should say, by Muslim extremists, and this is certainly something that's going to escalate. I, I'm, afra- I'm, I'm afraid... Um, as they kind of crack down on mosque, the extremist cells in France are going to start to act up. So, I mean, it's this could be the start of something bad, really. It really could. So, that's in Paris. So, I wanted to speak on South America and the election in Bolivia. So, if you had stuck around in my earlier episodes... I spoke pretty heavily on the coup that occurred against Evo Morales in uh, in Bolivia, left-wing president, first indigenous leader of the country, uh, so uh, pretty significant leaders um, in South America. But there was uh, the Organization of American States, they released this report saying that it's possibly fraudulent and they weren't even like totally on it. So they, they called into question the legitimacy of the election which sparked far-right nationalists to protest and riot in the street, and paramilitary groups, the military, I mean, like, he, he, Evo Morales had to leave the country and flee the country, because, I mean, there was, it was a coup, um, and in power, there was a Christian fundamentalist, uh, right-wing groups, the remnants of Spanish colonialism, right, so they were, uh, the, uh, interim president, which I need to see her name, is uh, Janine, right? Yeah, Janine Añez. She was, you know, bringing the Bible back into the state house saying, oh, this, uh, you know, the word of God has returned. Because these people view the indigenous people and poor people there as devil worshippers and, you know, Satan, but all this stuff. So, yeah, it's a very interesting situation that's occurring in. Well, I mean, I, I keep saying that, but... That had occurred, right? And so now, what we're seeing is the uh, pushback from left-wing organizers and the left parties and indigenous workers. I mean, they make up the majority of the country, so, you know, if you didn't get them on your side, they're going to speak out. So, because, I mean, their, their the quality of life did improve under Evan Morales. It did. So, of course, they're going to support the left-wing parties, obviously. I mean, what do you think Che Guevara was captured in Bolivia? Because they were, they were poor workers, poor indigenous workers, uh, basically slave labor, um, being repressed by this uh, fundamentalist Christian organ- government, right? A- anyway, not that I support Che Guevara, but it's just, you know, this, uh, yeah, this is just the after effects of that. Um, so I'm reading this from The Guardian, quote, Evo Morales's 
left-wing party is celebrating a stunning political comeback after its candidate appeared to trounce rivals in Bolivia's presidential election. The official results of Sunday's twice-postponed election had yet to be announced on Monday's, a Monday afternoon, but exit polls projected that Luis Arce, the candidate for Morales' Movimiento al Socialismo, MAS, had secured more than 50% of the vote while his closest rival, the centrist former president, Carlos Mesa, received about 30%. Mesa concluded defeat or conceded defeat on Monday lunchtime, telling supporters that a quick count showed a very convincing and very clear result. There is a large gap between the first place candidate and us, and as believers in democracy, it now falls to us to recognize that there is a winner in this election, Mesa said. Arce, a former finance minister under Morales, had earlier claimed victory in a late-night broadcast from La Paz. We have reclaimed democracy and, above all, we have reclaimed hope, said the 57-year-old UK-educated economist who is widely known as Lucho. Arce vowed to end the uncertainty that has plagued his bitterly divided nation since October 2019 when hotly disputed claims of voter vote-rigging against his party resulted in mass street protests and the presidential election being scrapped and Morales being forced from the country by security forces and what his supporters call a racist right-wing coon. Quote, we will govern for all Bolivians. We will bring unity to our country, said Arce, who should be sworn in as president in the first half of November. So, yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty. I thought there was going to be conflict. Like, I thought there was going to be lots of violence. Like, there was actually... A photo of this either male or councilwoman in in Bolivia in this town, and this mob came out because she's indigenous. Then this mob came out. They dragged her out into the street and they started throwing paint on her, all glitter. They started cutting her hair, uh, slapping her around, like like it was one step away from turning into a lynch mob, really. So, and I mean, it's still like the images you see are pretty, uh, pretty horrific. But now she won her uh, election. I mean, this is a huge, huge surge for, huge victory for the left-wing movement in Bolivia and the left-wing party. And it's, it will be interesting to see how it moves forward just for the region as a whole because we're seeing a lot of protests against the neoliberal policies and uh, this movement, this left-wing movement in South America that's growing, you know, in Chile, in Bolivia, and other places in the world, and Colombia had also protests as well. So, I mean, it it's swelling. I mean, you know, it, it's it, like it was a Latin spring. That's what essentially happened last year. I mean, people, again, attention spans for people is just so thin. So, like, this whole global, or I shouldn't say global, but this continental movement just, like, sprung and... Nobody noticed it. I mean, that's how disconnected people are from reality right now. And also, the media doesn't cover it. So, it's part of that. So, it's just... Yeah. But, this was a huge victory for the left in Bolivia. You know, restoring democracy and hope for indigenous workers and uh, the indigenous activists. But, you know, again, he's going to get sworn in in November. But, we'll, we'll just have to see how it moves forward. So who knows? Who who really knows? So that's in Bolivia. And I wanted to talk about kind of a, you know, trying to delve into more like Cold War stuff. And 
This is a kind of a connected with other incidences that have occurred in uh, places like Cuba. Uh, what ha occurred was that these agencies, CIA agents in Australia, they believed that they were the target of some kind of microwave attack or some kind of uh, ultrasound uh, acoustic attack because the, they have these symptoms of they have these symptoms that are in line with such uh, devices. So, quote, and I'm reading this from abcnet.au, so this is an Australian paper website. Quote, two agents from the United States Central Intelligence Agency feared they were attacked with a sophisticated, sophisticated microwave weapon while visiting Australia late last year as part of a global campaign by Russia targeting U.S. officials. The CIA officials reported hearing ringing in their in their ears and feeling nauseous and dizzy symptoms consistent with Havana syndrome first suffered by American diplomats serving in Cuba. According to a report in America's GQ magazine, mobile phone data revealed agents from Moscow's Federal Security Service, FSB, were in, this in the vicinity of their hotel room at the time of the visitors, sorry, at the time the visitors felt ill. While in their hotel rooms in Australia, both of the Americans felt it. The strange sound, the pressure in their ears, the ringing in their ears, or the pressure in their heads and the ringing in their ears, GQ reported. During 2017, the U.S. detailed how mysterious acoustic attacks on employees in its Havana embassy were causing brain-related injuries. The suspected attack on Australian soil is believed to have occurred at some point during the spring of 2019, before the CIA agents were then similarly targeted when they traveled on to Taiwan. Uh, one of the CIA agents attacked in Australia and Taiwan is understood to be among the agency's five highest-ranking officials. Uh, and let me move a little forward. So I'm reading this quote from Peter Jennings uh, from the Australian Strategic Policy. He says, quote, I think what we are seeing here is something that is most likely from the Russians, who seem to frankly care almost nothing of the consequences of aggressive intelligence actions, he said. This is lifting the levels of Cold War-style conflict to new highs. If we're actually engaging in things that amount to physical assaults on diplomats and intelligence officials, that's a new thing that we've really not seen before. So, yeah, they're, you know, this is a part of a pattern that's occurring where these diplomats and these officials, agents, they're experiencing symptoms from this device, this microwave attack device. And I don't know how exactly it does it. Um, let me see if I can find how it does it. Apparently, it's just like a, it's really, it's just focused, right? Um, and it's just like, who knows how it's done? But again, we're in a new Cold War or actually probably never ended, really. But we're, we're going to see more stories like this of covert actions and uh, you know people mysteriously dying or going missing. I mean, well, I mean, I like spy movies. I need to rewatch Marathon Man. That was a movie that, like, when I first saw it and just the, the, the level of spy, uh, the dynamic and just the, the covertness and... Uh, it's just wow. I mean, it's quite the life to be a CIA agent. Um, and I mean, like, 
it's not like people know. I mean, like, you can't just be like, oh, well, I'm CIA. Like, you just, shh, like, <laughs> uh, I mean, who knows? Who, who knows? But again, this is just something that's occurring uh, with these attacks and these devices. I mean, there's so many different ways. You know, there's been poisonings. And, uh, you know, as we saw with Navani, he, he got poisoned. And so many more have been poisoned. So this is just, we're going to see more of this. We're going to see more of this. And who knows what the Chinese are capable of? Who knows what's going to happen? But that was just something I wanted to touch up on there. So that is um, the gist of my international uh, speech and or segment, I should say. And I wanted to dive into the domestic area. And as we have in... Um, Texas, early voting is in effect, so, you know, the, the already um, voting has been pretty record high, actually, in Texas, so pretty, pretty insane, actually, and I voted, and as I said in the past, I've been having trouble choosing uh, what to cast my ballot for, and I thought long, I really, really thought long and hard about it. And people aren't going to like what I'm going to say, but I'm just, I feel like now is the time to make a stand, right? And the Democrats are playing the same strategy that they played in 2016. In fact, they did worse. They're, you know, and I can't reward that. I, I, I just... I cannot reward that, what they did. I can't reward, I mean, I'm not going to vote for Kamala Harris presidency. That's basically what a vote for Biden is. You're voting for Kamala Harris. So I voted for Joe Jorgensen. I voted for Joe Jorgensen. This was a protest vote and it's done. All right, it's done. What do you, you know, I mean... A lot of people aren't going to like that. I haven't even told people in public. This is the, really the first time that I've said anything about who I voted for. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm including it like in the middle of the podcast. It's just, uh, you know, because not, I don't know who, who, I don't know who's going to sit through all of this, but I'm really going to, depending on how the election goes, because if Joe Biden wins and he could win, I mean, he could, he has a real chance of winning. So if Joe Biden wins, then doesn't matter, right? Like, oh, you voted third party. Your guy still won. Like, so relax. But, you know, Biden isn't going to change anything. He's not. Everything that everything that's happening now is going to happen, okay? And no president is going to fix it. No president is going to stop it. And it's far deeper than that. He Like, it's... So it's a protest vote. That's why I did it. It's, um, you know, it's a fuck you to the establishment and to Democrats because, as I said, they played the same strategy. And if they lose, they're going to act so shocked. And what? How? How could? Because you guys did the same thing. Okay. And you expected something different. You guys are insane. <laughs> You're an insane party. And also... A lot of other things. It wasn't just the protest vote. Uh, the reason I did it, and the reason it was more so because, you know, because people could have said, well, you should, should have voted for Trump. 
no, because there's a lot of things that I don't like Trump on either. You know, it's just, I'm not going to vote for somebody who voted for the Iraq war. I'm not going to vote for somebody who voted for an assault weapons ban and who's going to, who's going to institute another one. I guess assault weapons, quote unquote, because AR-15 is not an assault rifle. But it's just, I could go on, really. But the the primary thing, the, the one thing that really struck out to me and really made me decide, you know what, third party, was the Hunter Biden laptop scandal. And this, and not just the scandal itself, but the response to it from big tech, that made me, that made me said nope. I mean, this is an October surprise. I mean, and you don't hear anything from the mainstream sources. I mean, this is, oh, we have to verify it. And you know, the, the New York Post, like their Twitter was suspended. And apparently now, like, um, Twitter is going to make some rules about how you retweet. I mean, they're, they're really cracking down on this. And this is why I said no to, to Biden, because I'm also saying no to big tech. Because Biden's not going to stop big tech. He's not. No. So, anyway. So, I'm going to read this from... F, uh, sorry, I almost said FBI. Uh, read this from Fox News. Which is probably the first article that I've ever sourced from Fox News. I mean, I don't usually do this. But since this is a pretty credible story, I'm going to talk about it. So, uh, quoting from it, Fox News. The FBI is in possession of the laptop purportedly belonging to Hunter Biden, which contained emails revealing his foreign business dealings, including contacts in Ukraine and Russia, two senior administration officials told Fox News Tuesday. The FBI declined to confirm or deny the existence of an investigation into the laptop or the emails as a standard procedure. Uh, Further, Fox News has learned that the FBI and Justice Department officials concur with an assessment from Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, that the laptop is not part of a Russian disinformation campaign targeting Dem- Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. Ratcliffe on Monday said that Hunter Biden's laptop and the emails on it is not part of some Russian disinformation campaign, despite claims from the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. Let me be clear, the intelligence community doesn't believe that because there is no intelligence that supports that. Ratcliffe said, and we have shared no intelligence with Adam Schiff or any member of Congress. Ratcliffe went on to say that it is simply not true. Quote, if you thought it wasn't possible for Schiff to have any less credibility, DOJ just proved you wrong, a senior intelligence official told Fox News. And right, so this is a, so what occurred, and I'm sure most of y'all have already done the research, but um, for what, what had occurred was that Hunter Biden um, had a laptop and it stopped working. So he took it to this repair shop. The guy fixed it, but Hunter Biden never returned for it. So the guy opened up, opened it up and you know saw what was inside. And he saw the emails and he saw the pictures. And he decided to give a copy to... Uh, he, he submitted uh, documents to Rudy Giuliani. And also he went to the FBI. So... Yeah, because, I mean, he, he was like, oh, snap, this is serious. Because, I mean, you, you know, Hunter Biden. Yeah, and this is before they were really running for election, Joe Biden. But, yeah, so what had occurred is that they found emails between uh, Hunter Biden, you know, in his association with this natural gas firm, Burisma Holdings. You know, 
and well, okay, I'll talk about the photos also because they they show the photos of him passed out, uh, smoking. I mean, supposedly, allegedly, a crack pipe. So like, you know, he's a he's a bit of a party animal. All right, and honestly, like I, I don't care about that. You know, he can do whatever he wants. I mean, as long as no children are involved, I, I don't care. I really don't care. But the corruption angle, however, with the Burisma Holdings and that, okay, this is something big, right? Um, so quote. The emails and questions were first obtained by the New York Post and in part revealed that Hunter Biden allegedly introduced his father, the then vice president, to a top, top executive at Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings less than a year before he pressured government officials in Ukraine to fire prosecutor Viktor Shokin, who was investigating the company's founder. The Post, reported, the Post report revealed that Biden, at Hunter's request, met with the executive Vadim Pozarsky, in April 2015 in Washington, D.C., the meeting was mentioned in an email of appreciation, according to the Post, that Porziski sent to Hunter Biden on April 17, 2015, a year after Hunter took on his position on the board of Burisma. Dear Hunter, or quote, Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving an opportunity to meet your father and spend some time together. It's really an honor and a pleasure. The email read. So, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, he had some business with Ukrainian firms and they were, uh, he was using that as leverage to, you know, get, well, okay, his son, Hunter Biden, was using his position in the company to get a top executive and involved with Joe Biden. And it, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it it's more so because, I mean, this is pretty significant, right? But then you also saw the big tech crackdown on it. And that really ticked me off. And that, that was like, okay, like I have to, this is something different. Because why would, why would they do that? Why would they come so hard against this? Something that's pretty, pretty credible, what we're seeing here. So, yeah, that's why I did it. That's why I voted third party. You know, I just I just couldn't do it. There's a lot of different things, but this was this was the straw. This was the final straw. I was just I can't do it, you know. And also, what we saw, because we saw the big tech censorship of this, but we also saw a organizer getting attacked in San Francisco. Philip Anderson, who I believe has been pretty outspoken. Yeah, he's a black. Trump supporter, I guess, free speech advocate. That's more apt. He's a free speech advocate who just happens to be black. But he went to this, he he had this rally and he was getting attacked. So it wasn't even a Trump rally. It was literally a free speech rally against big tech. That's something I would have been involved in, honestly. And to see the response, this dude got his teeth knocked out. He got his teeth knocked out by a white guy. And these guys think that the the free speech advocate is the racist antifa or I shouldn't say racist fascist Nazi. Like this is um you know when people say that Antifa isn't an organization but an ideology, it's just it's a <laughs> I don't know about you, but this ideology seems very organized. If you know and the people who are saying this have never studied asymmetrical warfare or guerrilla insurgencies. So 
you know, it's not necessarily something that I would listen to um, or anybody should, you know, like that really investigating Antifa has been a comeuppance moment for me because I have defended them, but now I feel silly, you know, now I feel, oh, and it's mainly the media because the media, like they, they target the Proud Boys and I was um, watching the, the Tim Pool episode with the, um, the chairman of Proud Boys and I finally got to listen to him talk, right? And listen to what their organization organization is about. And I I've been I've been duped. I've been fiddled. I've you know, thankfully I'm doing my own research now, but I'm just like, holy shit, like I have been played. Just like everybody else, I got played. So yeah, but this Hunter Biden scandal, this um it's pretty serious. And, you know, if you try to mention it between mainstream circles, if you try to talk about this at the dinner table, uh, people are going to be like, that's fake news. And that's a conspiracy. And no, it's not. This is pretty real. It's pretty serious. But anyway, that's just something I want to talk about. And also, we're seeing now with this final two weeks, we're, we're seeing um, pretty surprising endorsements. So 50 Cent came out in support of Trump. Um, he was um, griping about uh, Joe Biden's tax plan. <laughs> I'm reading for NY Post, right? So uh, rapper 50 Cent on Tuesday confirmed that he's backing President Trump for re-election, saying he would become 20 Cent under Democrat Joe Biden's for a uh, plan for higher taxes. Yeah, I don't want to be 20 Cent. 62% is a very, very bad idea. I don't like it. The Queens-raised rapper born Curtis James Jackson III wrote on Twitter. So... He's citing uh, Joe Biden's tax plan and his tax plan. Uh, Biden supports raising taxes for corporations and people making $400,000 or more per year, reversing part of Trump's 2017 tax law that reduced the top federal rate for individuals from 39.6% to 37%. The rapper posted an image from a CNBC broadcast that indicated New Yorkers could face Combined federal and state tax rates of 62%. Whoa. What the fuck, he wrote. Vote for Trump. I'm out. Fuck New York. <laughs> he added, the Knicks never win anyway. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. That, that's pretty funny. <laughs> He's pretty funny. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, because, you know, I talk about higher taxes and on corporations and such, um, you know, and it's actually, I, I pulled up Tax Foundation, right? Uh, TaxFoundation.org. Just to go over their plan. I mean, I, I'll i be honest, like, taxes are so complicated. It's, I should know better, but again, like, you really got to blame our education system for not educating us. I just, you know, I, I do believe in progressive tax rates and such. But I'll just go over the key findings from their TaxFoundation.org, right? So the Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden would enact a number of policies that would raise taxes on individuals with income above 400000 including raising individual income, capital gains, and payroll taxes. Biden will also raise taxes on corporations by raising the corporate income tax rate and imposing a corporate minimum book tax. Biden's plan would raise tax revenue by $30.05 trillion over the next decade on a conventional basis when accounting for macroeconomic feedback effects, the plan would collect 
about 2.65 trillion in the next decade. This is lower than we originally estimated due to the revenue effects of the coronavirus pandemic and economic downturn and new tax credit proposals introduced in the Biden campaign. According to the Tax Foundation's general equilibrium model, the Biden tax plan would reduce GDP by 1.47% over the long term. On a conventional basis, the Biden tax plan by 2030 would lead to about 6.5% less after tax income for the top 1% of taxpayers and about 1.7% decline in after-tax income for all taxpayers on average. And um, just a quick summary, right? So we repeal the TCJA component for high-income filers, uh, TCJA being the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, so passed by Trump, imposed 12.4% Social Security payroll tax for wages above 400 k increased the corporate income tax by 28%, or 28, 28%, Establish a corporate minimum tax on book income, double the tax rate on GILTI, and impose it country by country. Temporarily increase the generosity of the child tax credit and dependent credit, and some other numbers. I mean, you know, I've talked so much about taxes and this and that, but I, like, again, you guys probably know that I don't know what I'm talking about at this point, <laughs> but it, seeing this. And I'm just interested, right? Because it would tax all these people. Then I'm thinking, okay, what about the jobs, right? Are he, like, is he going to bring back the manufacturing and jobs? Because, I mean, you can tax the rich, right? But the working class still needs to work, right? What about that? And I don't know. I don't know if he would. I don't, I don't think Democrats are too focused on bringing manufacturing jobs back here, you know? Um, so that is interesting. I, I do need to do more research on that. But it was interesting. When I saw that on Twitter, 50 Cent endorsing Trump, that was quite the surprise. And now what we're also seeing is that Ice Cube, he didn't endorse Trump, but they're working together. Or he said that he was going to work with Trump. And people started crucifying him. And, you know... <laughs> The, the Chris Cuomo interview, that, that was super cringy, honestly. I didn't I, I can't watch the full thing because you can clearly tell that Cuomo was trying to attack Ice Cube. But Ice Cube didn't budge. And what he's been saying is that because he's trying to fix the black community, you know, he's, he's... Dude, this is Ice Cube. I mean, this guy was in it, you know? So, like, like if he's coming out and he's trying to, trying to do something for the black community and he goes to both parties... And one of them says, we'll get back to you. And the other one says, let's talk. Where do you think he's going to go, right? Where do you think he's going to go? And plus, he's the president. So, sadly, I mean, he's going to work with him. Or I shouldn't say sadly. He's just, he's going to work with him. He's Trump is the president. I mean, he probably didn't even meet in person. This is just their campaign. But people are so quick to jump and make conclusions. And, you know... I've done a lot of growth with this uh, Trump, you know, because I used to be on that uh, Trump derange, derangement syndrome. But then, you know, it, it's just, it consumes you and you, you just, it, it just, you, you go, it's like a black hole. You just, you, right? Here's what I'm finding, right? There's a cult, there's two cults of Trump, right? There's the cult of personality and then there's a cult of hate. That's what 
That is what's happening. So you have two cults that revolve around this one individual. I mean, Trump, I mean, look, Trump is a historic figure. There's no denying it. You know, whether you hate him or love him, or of course, if you love him, but it, it, he's a historical figure. He's a pivotal figure. And we're seeing these two cults now really, really like about to go to war. Um, so, you know, but what I mean to say is that you have Ice Cube willing to work with Trump and the, the administration and the administration is willing to work with him. So why shouldn't they? Right. And I don't know, you know, it's like th this type of behavior is not going to allow, it's not going to, and I say us because I do consider myself part of the left, but we're not going to win if we continue this behavior. You know, even I'm seeing it, bro. If I'm starting to see it and starting to wake up to it, that means y'all are really lost. Like, <laughs> that means y'all have, like, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, that's what's happening there. It's just so interesting. I mean, this is like, people are so fixated on the black community. Oh, we have to, we have to get the black community support. And, the, and you know, I cannot speak for the black community whatsoever. I can hardly speak for my own community. I can hardly speak for Dominicans, you know? So, but I was watching um, an interview. And it's so, I mean, I, I watched like old time, like debates and interviews because it was such a more refined time. And you see people speaking more eloquently and like, you, you can really tell the comparison between then and now and how regressive our society and our culture has become. Um, so I was watching Malcolm X, and he was talking, and this was after he went on his Hajj to Mecca. So this is when he became the best version of himself, um, you know, you know, and he was talking about the black community, and that this is something that they have to fix. Like we as a community need to fix this, because no president is going to fix it. Like you know. And he talks about how, how it's not so not even a civil right issue, it's a human rights issue. But that aspect of self-actualization within their community, that's good. I mean, people, look, there there's a lot to be said about the drug war and systemic racism, because that's real, right? But we like to pretend as though the black community is innocent and has never done anything wrong. That's no, like. And they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear, you know, what they need to fix in their own community because it's always reparations. And, you know, like even rep the idea of reparations, like just giving the money is like, wait a minute, like what exactly is this? You know, because if you if we want to talk about reparations, I mean, my people have experienced slavery and genocide also, whereas my, rep you know, so it's like, come on, you know, anyway. So I want to talk about that, uh, the tax plan and these endorsements. I mean, these, these, the, the two week warning is, uh, this is the official title of the, the episode, but it's the two week warning, you know, so this is crunch time, you know, this is crunch time and we're, we're really going to see some surprising twists and turns. It's crazy because I haven't told anybody that I voted third party and already I had people like, just like say like, oh, you probably voted for Trump because you got these guns now. I'm just like, what are you, 
you know, I'm not worried about these people because they're normies. I'm like, <laughs> and when they find out I vote third party, I'm, you know, I'm just going to be like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do because I voted third party? Okay. And if your guy loses, what are you, you're going to come after me, you, I mean, these are people that are like, they want to defund the police, but they don't want to get a gun to defend themselves, you know? And these are people that they talk about all cops are bastards, this and that. But these are people who are going to call the police when the mob comes for them, you know? So it's like, like they're, they they the point that I'm inconsistent and I'm not saying I'm not because you know, I'm doing a lot. I have to do a lot of reevaluations and, you know, because, I mean, I'm trying to step into political commentary, so I have to really research it. And I've made a, quite a bit of adjustments on my views. But, yeah, I mean, people, you know, Ken Bone voted third party. That that actually um made me feel good about this decision when Ken Bone said he was voting third party. And people were calling him a Nazi collaborator. And, you know, this was on, the, like, the Crystal Ball and um, Sagar and Jetty, uh, The Hill. And... You know, Krista Ball was like, you're, you're free to make whatever choice you want. This is a democracy. I don't have to vote for Biden. I don't have to vote for him. But he's not going to fix anything. And, and yeah, as I said, you're voting for Kamala Harris. That's what you're really voting for. So I said, no. They play the same strategy and they do not earn my vote. Okay, and I'm still, I'm still actually in the headspace of like, oh man, I got to vote. I already did it. The deed is done. The deed is done. Locally... You know, I kind of mixed and matched it. You know, I tried to do a bit of research on who was in the county and, you know, and such, and state representatives. I mean, so in that case, I just voted whatever. I mean, it was just damn lib. Sometimes there was only one Republican there. But, yeah, but who knows? I mean, I'm, I am worried about the results and what's going to happen and if Trump wins. There's going to be violence and anger against Trump supporters, and that's unacceptable. There's going to be violence and anger against third-party voters. That's unacceptable. And, you know, I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. Um, you know, any any kind of threat against me is not going to go unpunished, you know? Like, it's just, how how is that acceptable in this day and age, you know? So, anyway, don't want to dive too deep into that, but I want to talk about um, in Texas, because we're seeing early voting records being broken, and specifically with Harris County, I mean, Texas as a whole, I believe, has already casted about, has, it, the early voting that's been casted is already larger than the the pool of votes for Trump. So, I mean, this is record-breaking uh, turnout. Um, but again, we're seeing this primarily in these large cities. And Harris County, Houston. Uh, so I'm reading this from the Houston Chronicle. Um, and they're talking about a blue wave or secret Trump voters, right? So more than 700,000 Harris County residents cast ballots during the first week of early voting in a stouting figure that appears to indicate that fears that the COVID-19 pandemic would suppress turnout have been allayed. By Monday evening, the county had passed 50% of total turnout from 2016. With 12 days of voting remaining, Harris County, the most populous county in the state, also has accounted for 18% of the 4.1 million votes cast 
in Texas through Sunday. Uh, some Democrats see the blockbuster turnout here as early evidence of the so-called blue wave that will deliver the state to Joe Biden. Republicans say their voters are equally enthusiastic and eager to get their ballots in. So, what can be inferred from the vote that is in so far? A few things. Keep in mind that there is many as 1 million votes left to be cast, however, so there is still plenty of time for trends to shift. Chronicle analyzed the votes cast so far by age, gender, and precinct compared to the last presidential election in 2016 using the election roster from the Harris County Clerk. We also examined 2020 turnout so far in precincts that went for President Trump and Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so they find these different factors, right? So here's what is known. They say these things. So Democrats appear to be doing well in Harris County, but don't call it a wave yet. Um, and they're talking about just the turnout, just high turnout in general. They also point out a surge of uh, reg registrations, right? A surge of young women voting or young people and women and minorities voting. And that typically is a sign of, you know, Democratic favor. You know, they, they show when there's higher turnout, Democrats typically win. So, and I'm looking at this map, actually, so it's by precinct, and so it's the Houston area. And I'm not too familiar, because I'm more out of the west side, Katy. Actually, well, the area that I live in is in Fort Bend County, but it's still part of Houston, you know. Um, but, yeah, so you see in the more densely populated areas... Uh, it's all blue. There's still some gray areas filled in, but it's all blue. And we also look at the suburban outer edges that are red. So it's a it's a pretty interesting dynamic that we see. There is, however, like a small enclave of red uh, in well, just if you know Houston, it's like Bel Air. It's a, a Piney Point Village, and that area is like typically like a suburban yuppie area. So yeah, this is interesting to see. But in Houston, right, record voting, record turnout. Texas as a whole has record turnout. But this state now is a battleground state. It is. Demographic changes. I mean, we've had a surge of immigration coming into the country. I'm part of that, or into the state, I should say. And I'm part of that wave. So uh, liberalizing the state. Look, man, I mean, as long as we keep the gun laws, I'm I'm pretty okay with the state becoming a little more liberal as long as we keep our gun laws because we have really good gun laws like i'm 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 super glad i'm not in california <laughs> really glad but that was uh what's happening in harris county in texas and uh, yeah i mean we're gonna have to see we're really gonna have to see what's gonna happen there but that's just uh yeah i mean it's interesting to see because i've done canvassing and voting and or, you know, I've done canvassing in, you know, the summer heat. And if you know Houston, the heat is atrocious. I mean, we talk about wet bulb. This is one of those areas where the wet bulb is going to hit. So I don't really want to stay in Houston uh, for, you know, extended periods. I mean, I would just be walking around, like, sweating my ass off. And, you know, as long as you're hydrated and staying cool, it's all good. But... People were just shocked by the amount of sweat that I... I sweat a lot, actually. It's... Uh, I don't know if it's a problem, but it... Yeah, they were, they were like, shocked. Like, oh, my God, you need water? I'm like, yeah, just... I'm fine. But 
yeah, this is this is what's happening in Harris County. So I wanted to talk about that, but this uh, kind of just before I wrap up the domestic segment, you know, just talking about this election. Uh, but another thing that's occurring is the tribalization of our country. You know, people picking sides now. You know, I don't want to be on any side. I just want to be myself. But you know, because as I said, I'm not. I'm really going to try to avoid talking about my vote in person. You know, I'm only going to talk about it here, right? Because people just automatically assume that I voted for Joe Biden. Okay, all right. You know, we're going to see where things go. Um, but you know, for those who, you know. It's going to be funny when they actually like approach me. I'm going to be like, ah, you actually listen to my podcast. So, but, you know, yeah, I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I can't, I can't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. But it's going to be interesting because the left is becoming tribal and the right's becoming tribal. You know, I guess I already have a bit of a tribe, but we're not even like, political in that sense we're just like you know okay whatever like you believe what you want you know but man uh, and as i said also we have the tribalization and we also have cults and as i said before we have the cult of trump and it's it's one coin with two sides so a cult of hate and a cult of personality cult of love but they they're fixated on trump and yeah, I mean, you know, a cult's a cult. I mean, like, growing up, I I, I was worried about... Because, I mean, I grew up as a Catholic. So, kind of, uh, or was already raised uh, around a cult. Um, but seeing, like, stuff like the Jonestown, Heaven's Gate, that really fascinated me. The Branch Davidians, you know. So, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see cults as a whole, but just their behavior. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with social pressure. A lot of it has to do with social alienation, actually, (laughs) you know, and I I don't, you know, I don't care. You know, if you're actually going to attack me and say certain things about me, then you get, I guess you were never really my friend because if you were my friend and you would hear me out and you would hear what I have to say and you would understand and respect my decision and you would understand that you know this is a democracy i'm free to make whatever choice i want i can do what i want so there's that but we got the tribalization the cults that are forming around in the country uh generally as the rule of law starts to break down you know people start identifying with their in-group because you know, people, st- like, people see themselves less as Americans and more as the group that they're in. And that becomes a problem. But that's what's happening there. So that's the domestic segment that we want to talk on. Voting and the like. So, yeah. So now I'll move on to the natural world. And, you know, there's some certain events unfolding in the natural world. And... One thing that we're seeing in the Caribbean uh, around Trinidad and Tobago is an oil tanker uh, listing in the ocean, a Venezuelan oil tanker that has the potential to leak 1.3 million barrels of oil. 
Yeah, so reading from Forbes.com, a state of environmental emergency is being called for by fishermen in Trinidad and Tobago over a sinking oil tanker with 1.3 million barrels of oil. If the oil spills, it would threaten the entire southern Caribbean at 264 meters in length and a capacity of 1.4 million barrels. The spill would be five times worse, five times worse than the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska in 1989 which was the worst in history until the 2010 BP Deepwater Horizon. Officials have been criticized for allowing the situation to evolve for three months without taking sufficient action. The Nambarima is a Venezuelan oil tanker, but part operated by Italian energy giant 55 billion ENI and has been caught up in U.S. sanctions since disputed elections questioned the legitimacy of the Venezuelan president. The tilting has been of concern since the first notice since it was first noticed in July and crews later discovered water linking on board the situation has gotten progressively worse since then it was only last week that a representative of the fishing community in Trinidad Gary Aboud was able to get close enough to the heavily listing Venezuelan oil tanker to show firsthand how serious the risk was especially with the Caribbean in a particularly active 2020 hurricane season that is only due to end by November 30th uh, combined with drone footage to show the angle of tilting, his two-and-a-half-minute video shows the risk that poor weather would have on the tanker and what he highlights as a lack of urgency by the Trinidad and Tobago, Tobago government or the international community to act. With the oil spill in Mauritius in August, it was the UN shipping regulator, the International Maritime Organization, who sent representatives to coordinate the Wakashio oil spill efforts in the United Nations for the United Nations but they were widely seen to have exacerbated the oil spill crisis. Ironically, the news from the Caribbean comes as the IMO is debating oil and emissions targets for ships in London this week amid criticism that environmental standards are being watered down by this UN agency. So, pretty serious disaster that could occur, pollution, poisoning of the waters, and the fish. I mean... It's sad to see in the Caribbean because this is where I grew up in. So, uh, watching Caribbean and pristine waters get polluted by by oil is not a good sign. I mean, this is this is a very serious situation, and you know, again, I you know, because I talk about I guess the Green New Deal and slowly doing away with fossil fuels. It's not just the emissions, right? It's stuff like this, accidents and, uh, you know, this uh, lapse of judgment, cutting corners, because, you know, people are, they complain about the regulations and, well, you know, this is going to affect our profit margins and such. Well, you know, that's a, that's a price to pay because if we don't have these regulations and if we can't expect, inspect it and make sure that you're doing your part to keep this up to shape, an accident can occur that will cause irreversible damage. I mean, th this is serious. This is poison. I mean, you know, and you know, I can also talk on and on about not just the poisoning of the the waters, our oceans, but also the air. I mean, anyway, it's just. I understand we got to keep jobs. I understand, you know, like 
you know, I have lots of family in the oil and gas industry. I'm not saying that they don't, you know, that that can't sustain itself and that can't continue, but we have to reevaluate what we're doing because you have accidents and it's incidences like this that create irreversible damage. And yeah, I mean, again, the oceans are pollute, being polluted, acidifying, you know, this is what's happening is happening, you know? But yeah, that's um, Venezuelan ships and Trinidad and Tobago. And this is kind of, you know, I see some people post about it, but honestly, this is kind of like just another oil spill, you know? So yeah, so that's what's happening there. Um, so I'll move onward. But yeah, talking about ocean pollution, uh, here's another factor that's being uh, overlooked. And this uh, this was a recent uh, article that came out. So they're showing that polluted air, so reading from the, government, the Guardian, polluted air is killing about half a million babies uh, a year across the globe. And they're, they're pointing more towards indoor air quality, but don't think for a second that the outdoor quality isn't having an effect either. But yes, uh, quote, air pollution last year caused the premature death of nearly half a million babies in their first month of life, with most of, most of the infants being in the developing world, data shows. Exposure to airborne pollutants is harmful also for the babies in the womb. It can cause a premature birth or low birth weight. Both of these factors are associated with higher infant mortality. Nearly two-thirds of the 500,000 deaths of infants documented were associated with indoor air pollution, particularly arising from solid fuels such as charcoal, wood, and animal dung for cooking. The discovery is reported in the State of Global Air Report 2020, which examined data on deaths around the world alongside a growing body of research that links air pollution with health problems. Medical experts have warned for years of the impacts of dirty air on older people and on those with health conditions, but are all only beginning to understand the deadly toll on babies in the womb. And they show a they, they show a chart over the deaths. Um, particulate matter contributed to the deaths of almost half a million babies under one month old in 2019. And so they show about 236,000 deaths occurred in uh sub sub-saharan africa and more than two-thirds of it being from household to air pollution and then the one below that in south asia being 186,000, southeast asia 23,000, north africa and the middle east 20,000, latin america and the caribbean 7.7,000, central europe eastern europe central asia uh, 2.700 uh and in high income, 1200. So, yes, this is um, you know, this is primarily in rural communities and developing nations, right? And what they were showing, right, is mainly to do with the indoor pollution that they're you know trying to cook, so they have to use charcoal or wood, and isn't proper ventilation, and just the conditions in general. It's just not as sanitary. I'm going to read further, actually. Uh, so, Catherine Walker, principal scientist at the Health Effects Institute, which published the report, said, We don't totally understand what the mechanisms are at this stage, but there is something going on that is causing reductions in baby growth and ultimately birth weight. 
there is an ep epidemiological <laughs> link shown across multiple countries and multiple studies. So they're just now starting to understand this and the, the effects. I mean, what they're saying is like the pollution is more um, in line with the pollution in uh, industrial era London, you know, 1850s and, and the like, uh, which like, damn, that's pretty bad. <laughs> that's pretty bad. So, yeah, I mean, who knows what this is going to have, you know, what kind of effects this is going to be down the line, you know, and the air quality in general is going to decline as a whole. Uh, so th this is seriously going to affect babies and, you know, if babies are dying off like this, I mean, this is really, uh, this should be an alarm bell for humanity. Hello. You know, this kind of reminded me of children of men, you know, like there could be a point where there's so much pollution that just, you know, it's just miscarriages. I mean, the, you know, people can't have babies anymore. I mean, that, that, I mean, every time I watch that movie, I'm just like, this is, this is our future. And we're like, I think four years away from when the film takes place. So, I mean, we're, we're getting pretty close to, um, that reality. I mean, we possibly could, but yeah, this air pollution, it's not just the babies in general, because they're also showing how exposure to air pollutants could lead to brain damage, organ failure, other sorts of things, cancer. I mean, this they're just now starting to understand it, but who knows what effects this has had on our bodies for the last, for as long as industrial civilization has existed, right? So who knows? But yes, this is a pretty, pretty, it's sad because, you know, seeing babies like that and, you know, it's just sad. Um, yeah, so more natural events around the world, right? In India, there was a rainstorm that occurred. They've already been experiencing massive flooding and massive rains, uh, monsoon season. Uh, this is just another instance of it. So reading from Al Jazeera, at least 16 people have been killed in incidents of wall and house collapses amid record rains in southern India, officials and media reports said. Nine people died in the city of Hyderabad, after a perimeter wall collapsed and fell on a set of houses during heavy rains Tuesday night, regional legislator Asaduddin Owasi said on Twitter, India media reports said the dead included a two-month-old infant. Five other people, including an old couple and their grandson, were, were killed when two other house, houses collapsed. During the downpour in the city, police said two other persons were swept away by floodwaters. The Associated Press reported daily life has been thrown out of gear across parts of Hyderabad as roads are flooded and vehicles washed away in several neighborhoods. Telangana, where Hyderabad is located, and neighboring Andhar, Andhra Pradesh states have witnessed heavy rains for the last three days caused by, deep depression, by a deep depression in the Bay of Bengal. At least a total of 18 people have died in the region since Monday, India media reports said. Hyderabad received 25 centimeters of rain in the past 24 hours, the highest in over 20 years, the Indian Meteorological Department official said, according to the Times of India newspaper. And they're just talking about how different uh, rainstorms have been affecting India and also South Asia. And what they're saying is that 
More than 9.6 million people across South Asia have been affected by severe floods this year, with hundreds of thousands struggling to get food and medicine. So not only is this damage occurring in the cities and getting flooded, killing people, but this is also affecting crop fields. And we're going to see some interesting effects with the you know, rice patties and all these other uh, food items. So that's what's happening there. But I mean, they, they said about 10 inches of rain. I mean, this is a, yeah, it's a downpour torrential. And again, these are areas that don't really have uh an infrastructure built to survive this so it's very easy for their houses to get swept away and you know collapse and such but yeah this is something that's happened in india and south asia in general so moving forward i want to also touch up on the ozone layer because that's pretty important right and the effects that's occurring with antarctica they're showing that the ozone hole over antarctica is the deepest and widest uh, it's been for some time. So reading this from sciencealert.com, the hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica has expanded to one of its greatest recorded sizes in recent years. In 2019, scientists revealed that the Antarctic ozone hole had hit its smallest annual peak since tracking began in 1982, but the 2020 update on this atmospheric anomaly, like other things this year, brings a sobering perspective. Uh, quote, our observations show that the 2020 hole has grown rapidly since mid-August and covers most of the Antarctic continent with, the su with its size well above average, explains project manager De Diego Loyola from the German Aerospace Center. Uh, new measurements from the European Space Agency's Copernicus Centennial 5P satellite show that the ozone hole reached its maximum size of around 25 million square kilometers, about 2.6 million square miles on uh, October 2nd this year. That puts it in about the same ballpark as 2018 and 2015's ozone holes, which respectively recorded peaks of 2.9 and 2, 25.6, 22.9, sorry, and 2.56, uh, 25.6 million square kilometers. There is much variability in how far ozone holes events uh, develop each year says atmospheric scientist Vincent Henry Pugh uh, from the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts. The 2020 ozone hole resembles the one from 2018, which also was a quite large hole and is definitely in the upper part of the pack of the fi last 15 years or so. As well as fluctuating from year to year, the ozone hole over Antarctica also shrinks and grows annually with ozone concentrations inside the hole depleting when temp temperatures in the stratosphere become colder. So yeah, there's just other reasons, right? I mean, primarily the effects of the ozone hole are because of uh, refrigeration, right? Yes, what they call chlorofluorocarbons. Chemicals previously used in refrigerator refrigerators, packaging, and sprays that destroy, destroy ozone molecules in, in sunlight, right? So they're pointing to that, um, and they're also pointing that uh, basically what happens is that uh, when the polar stratosphere clouds form at temperatures below 70, negative 78 uh, Celsius, degrees Celsius, the chemical reactions destroy ozone molecules in the presence of solar radiation. So there's a lot of different factors that occur with, the, with these uh, 
aerosols is what they really are, what they're called, and the temperature changes and their solar radiation. So, I mean, yeah, the ozone layer, that being depleted, is uh, pretty, pretty significant, pretty serious. So, we're going to have to see, right? And they're saying that by um, an assessment from the World Meteorological Organization found that ozone concentrations above Antarctica would return to relatively normal pre-1980s levels by about 2060. To realize that goal, we have to stick to the protocol and write out the bumps like the ones we're seeing this year, right? So, yeah, they're just showing that this is a growing and... You know, they're just keeping an eye on it. Again, I mean... Just seeing that being depleted and imagining a world without an ozone layer is quite... It's quite the scenario, honestly. But we're going to have to see again. So there's that. The ozone layer there. And I also wanted to talk about a pretty interesting event, actually. Or what they're noticing. So, there's been a series of incidents occurring with orca whales and these fishermen along Spain and Portugal. And it's pretty surprised. I mean, uh, surprising because, you know, they call orcas killer whales, but in the wild, they never attack people. In fact, there's been plenty of incidences of uh, whales working with fishermen, you know, I mean, the, the intelligence of these animals is probably, is definitely superior to ours, you know, it's just they're in the ocean, so they don't have to create a civilization, you know, they're just swimming and eating and, you know, playing with the puffer fish, you know, the dolphins, they, they play with puffer fish because of the toxins that make them high, like, they're just living their best life, you know, yeah, these are sea people, basically, but these orcas, the reporting of incidences of these uh, pods of whales attacking fishing vessels and yachts and this is crazy so right so reading from the guardian uh, scientists have been baffled have been left baffled by incidents of orcas ramming sailboats along the spanish and portuguese coast in the last two months from southern to northern spain sailors have sent distress calls after worrying encounters two boat Two boats lost part of their rudders. At least one crew member suffered bruisings from the impact of the ramming, and several boats sustained serious damage. The latest incident occurred on Friday afternoon just off A Coruña, on the northern coast of Spain. Holison uh, Yacht was taking a 36-foot boat to the UK when a orca rammed its stern at least 15 times, according to Pete Green, the company's managing director. The boat lost steering. The boat lost steering and was towed into port to assess damage. Around the same time, there was a radio warning of orca sighting 70 miles south at Vigo, near the site of at least two recent collisions. On the 30th, 30th of August, a French-flagged vessel radioed the coast, saying it was under attack from killer whales. Later that day, a Spanish naval yacht, Mirfac lost part of its rudder after an encounter with orcas under the stern. <laughs> this is so insane, really. Uh, highly intelligent social animals, orcas are the largest of the dolphin family. Researchers who study a small population in the Strait of G Gibraltar say they are curious 
and it is normal for them to follow a bolt closely, even to interact with the rudder, but never with the force suggested here. The Spanish maritime authorities warned vessels to keep a distance, but reports from sailors around the strait throughout July and August suggest this may be difficult. At least one pod appears to be pursuing boats and behavior the scientists agree is highly unusual and concerning. It is too early to understand what is going on, but it might indicate stress in a population that is endangered. Wow, that is insane. <laughs> but yeah, these um, I, this is like um, for those who've seen uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this kind of is like a so long and thanks for all the fish moment. But like, <laughs> this is just more like they're exacting vengeance or something. I, I think it may just be that they're experiencing stress with. You know, the fishing populations and, you know, their their food supplies dwindling. Uh, I mean, there's so much going on with these orca populations and the dolphin populations. But to see this, because I, I, I had actually, like, thought about this for a long time. I'm like, I, I, I don't know why, specifically with orcas. But I'm just like, they absolutely have the power and capabilities to just flip over a boat, you know? Like, like a medium-sized fishing vessel. Because, I mean... These orcas, they they work together. I mean, you know, we've probably seen the documentary, these Planet Earth documentaries where they 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 have the seal on the tiny iceberg and the orcas working together to flip over the iceberg. I mean, it's insane. And then I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what if that is just a small fishing boat? These orcas could absolutely flip a boat, a fishing boat. Absolutely could. Or it can be, like at least cause enough damage to cause it to sink. I mean, it, it it destroyed the rudder. Like they had to get towed in. Like that's pretty insane to see that the behavior from orcas. You now, when we talked about, I mean, I don't think we've talked about it before, but you know, we talked about uh, the captivity of orcas and that kind of behavior and what it does. But now we're seeing it in the wild. So who knows what's happening here? But it seems that this is only in this area. Uh, the Mediterranean, you know, Gibraltar, uh, yeah, that, that area there. A very interesting situation. just want to talk about that real quick because uh, I know yeah, everybody likes whales and they're all cute and cuddly, and, but this is uh, pretty serious. I mean, <laughs> nature is, um, this is a pretty direct way of nature, like just getting back at humanity, you know? But yeah, so I just wanted to mention that there. Uh, yeah, so that kind of wraps up the main natural segment, although I do wanted to talk about something more local, more about myself, not collapse-related, but uh, I've mentioned before that I was trying to get into hog hunting. You know, I've been out in the field a couple times. No success, but I've gotten pretty close, you know. Just, I, I have to learn this on my own and have to do the research on my own because I don't know anybody who... Is tough enough to go out into the wild just you know point blank I mean they're just I know I have a lot of soft people around me and you know the idea of going out to hunt ew, like I, I'm just I'm surrounded by people who are gentle and soft who when I talk about going out into the woods they're like what like dude like if I'm gonna learn prepping I gotta train I gotta fucking go out there you know, you, you gotta, 
I don't know. It's lost on people, and they they they, they kind of treat me as though I'm the serial killer in disguise or something. Like, oh, you just want to kill animals? Like that's not. If that were the case, <laughs> that would have been done a long time ago. You know, like, you know. Anyway, what what I mean to say is that deer hunting season is starting to ramp up. Uh, it starts November seventh, and I like the area that I'm at because we are there's like national forest. At least an hour drive away. I mean, it's right down the road. So, yeah. So, I'm in a good spot if I want to go hunting. Although, I'm not worried about meat at the moment. So, yeah, I'd have to be pretty wise on how I go about this. But, yeah. I'm just, honestly, it's not even the hunting part. I just want to get lost in the woods. Can I just get lost in the woods? <laughs> you know? Now, of course, I'm like arm to the teeth but it's more just like a training thing you know more of a situational training thing yeah anyway you know i haven't i was going to do a camp out you know just like a two like a weekend camp out a bug out training thing and somebody stole my fucking tent so can't do that have to save up for a tent but yeah you know i just wish i had more people outdoorsy people uh, prepper friends, you know, but, you know, it's, uh, it, in my mind, it's better to do a lone wolf thing, like, you know, camping is just something that you have to do either alone or with the right people, right, and, you know, I can, I know how much I can handle, I mean, like, you know, if I want to talk about my first hunting expedition, that almost ended in disaster, like, that was bad, <laughs> but it was something that, I didn't panic. I was just like, okay, you know, just just get out. Just you know, you can survive this, you know. And oh, well, I'm here, obviously, so I did survive it. But it was just like, wow, um, that that was not my finest hour. But you know, again, with the hunting season rolling around, uh, deer hunting season, uh, it's just something that I wanted to get into. But I'm still going to focus on hogs because really, like, the hogs need to go. The the hogs are causing so much damage um yeah man it's really like a war honestly you know like when i go out there and when i step off the beaten path the damage is real the damage is real and it's it's pretty insane honestly so i mean it's a public service and then also i have a a permit where i can sell the hogs that that i hunt so that's good you know yeah and also forging i'm trying to get into forging i need to see what more uh, research the edible plants in the area area the, the mushrooms that i can eat i mean again i mean you know i talk all this stuff about the apocalypse and prepping not that i am a prepper but i might as well train and you know just it's a hobby you know you know, why, why can't I just have this hobby? You know, why do you have to think that I'm up to something? I literally just want to survive. That's it. I just want to survive. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so that's um, the main program. Just some parting words. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reevaluating the program. I'm not saying that the program that I have here isn't doing well. It's doing great. Or, you know, it's doing better than I anticipated, but 
constantly I'm always trying to see where I can improve. And of course, there's a lot of improvement that I can make. So I'm trying to streamline that, uh, trying to streamline it so that way I can monetize it more on YouTube, maybe step into that area because I was just saying I, I just don't want to deal with copyright rules and this and that. But you know what? Like, if I'm going to take this seriously, YouTube has to be the platform to at least step out into. Uh, again, I don't even know how long before I do a face reveal or, you know, stuff like that, vlogging. But, uh, you know, again, streamlining it, refining it, you know, just uh, improving and building off of the past work. Because, you know, I, I used to look at some of the episodes and the analytics because there's some episodes that people sit through and listen. And there's others where it kind of just drops off. So it, it's really hit. I, I know that sometimes it's hit or miss and I just got to keep working at it. Right. Because I know I suck, you know. I, you know, I'm looking at all these different presenters and these podcasters and I'm just like, okay, I'm here at this totem pole. Let me, you know, take, I'm just taking it easy. I, I don't mind taking things easy because it's better to just stay in your lane, but improve, right? And to just jump and take a risk that you are most likely not going to be able to recover from, right? So, yeah, um... That's that. So this is my program, Gabriel Marrero. Um, I do have Patreon, right? So for $1 a month, you can get early access, ad-free access on my Patreon. You know, on the Patreon page, I just have everything public because there's nobody there. But, you know, I, I will you know, release ad-free content, early access there. And also, and you can find that because, uh, you know, Putting these posts on Reddit, they don't mods don't like seeing the advertising, uh, you know the the Patreons. They don't. I mean, I guess they that's what they've told me. So, you know, just find that collapse talk at Patreon. Then I have my personal email or business email, I guess, uh, with collapse talk pod at outlook.com. and that same handle is for my PayPal. So if you don't want to do a monthly donation, you can go to the PayPal. Uh, and Twitter, Twitter and YouTube, Collapse Talk. Well, for Twitter, it's at Collapse Talk Pod, and that I can include on the Reddit post. Uh, but yeah, so I appreciate y'all listening and sitting through my talk and, uh, you know, just bearing with me, right? You know, and as I said, you know, I've done a lot of reevaluation of my views and, you know, just to see where I'm at, you know? And I will say, you know, I've. Yeah, you know, it's been a comeuppance moment, as I said before, uh, being a leftist person, talking all this about socialism, this and that, and then actually see it come to practice. Because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are listening to this and in my personal life to be like, I told you so, you know. I, I wanted to make it clear that I always knew where my line was, right? Like, I always, I always knew how far I was going to take my views. And the line stops when you start attacking people when you start uh, belittling others, when you start... And I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of this, because in the past I have behaved in that fashion. Uh, so I'm trying to step away from that now, trying to improve that. Uh, but, I, you know, even as a leftist, borderline Marxist... I, actually, I have never was a Marxist, but, you know, I still post Marxist memes, you know, they're funny. But it, I knew where my line was, and... The line has already been crossed, 
with Antifa and BLM. And I can't support that. You know? And especially now when, you, when you're saying, oh, well, um, I don't really like this behavior. Well, you're this side now. Like, okay, I see what's happening. You know, y'all are just going to coalesce around each other. And if somebody thinks differently, they're the enemy, you know? So I'm going to gravitate towards those who actually try to understand me. You know, if you're going to come at me, ask why. Ask why. Not don't attack. Don't be like, you're a problem and this and that. Because, you know, this is the reason why the results of 2016 occurred. And... I mean, we're yet to see what's going to happen for 2020, but as I showed with Ice Cube and 50 Cent, Ken Bone, uh, people who didn't even say that they supported Trump. They just didn't, they weren't, they, they were just, you know, sticking to their own principles, you know, trying to say, hey, you know, I want to stick to my principles. I want to vote my way. I, I don't, I don't want to give in to the establishment, you know, anyway. I don't want to dive into that so too deep into it but uh yeah so again made some changes you know trying to streamline this program and possibly after the election i'm going to start releasing this more make it more weekly i'm gonna try my best to do that because things are gonna get wild things are gonna get pretty wild but i'll do my best there and also just releasing content on youtube I was going to record that Kenshi playthrough, which I do have on my uh, YouTube. I still haven't done the second playthrough, so I'm going to have to do that. It's just, you know, having to work full time now. I mean, like at this point, I'm not even like going into the Zoom calls for my classes. I'm just turning in assignments because I'm just, you know, <laughs> like one of the, um, you know, because I did this media practicum. And this, uh, the guy who called, you know, I just don't have time to answer him. You know, it's just like, okay, like, I just don't have time. And so he's like talking to me. He's like, well, you know, I'm kind of your boss. And I'm just sitting here like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Because I'm not, I'm not getting paid for this. So if I'm not getting paid, it's a waste of my time. You know, that's really where I'm at right now. I'm understanding now that I got swindled with college. You know, because I'm not studying a STEM degree. I'm not studying engineering. You know, I got swindled. That That's really what it is. And, you know, I'm just losing my patience with this, you know. And I know if I drop out, I'm going to have all the student debt. And, dude, there's some people who never touched college and they're in a far better position financially than me. Which, you know, I'm not saying if I didn't go to college, I wouldn't be in a bad financial spot but it's just it really shows that it's it's money it's just how you how you yeah you just gotta hustle man we're, we're a country of hustlers okay we're not intellectuals out here we're hustlers if you can make money doesn't matter what degree you got you know it doesn't matter i mean look look i, I talk about tim pool quite a bit but i mean this guy's a college high school dropout he dropped out of high school and He's doing pretty well for himself, you know. Now he, he's got his homestead. I mean, he's living my goals, you know. But, hey, I mean, I just got to do what I can, right? And sure, build myself out of whatever. So, with that being said, uh, just to wrap up things, um, 
I'll recap on my Patreon, Collapse Talk, Twitter at Collapse Talk Pod, email Collapse Talk Pod at Outlook.com, and just other links I'll, I'll, I'll include in the Reddit post. So, that being said, I appreciate y'all sticking through with this, and, you know, I'm going to see y'all after the election. We're, we're like, the, you know, so this is really, you know, this is the two week warning, right? So, and, you know, I've tried to signal to my normie friends, like, get get food, get water, get ammunition. So, and but I don't have to tell y'all. Honestly, this program is very much preaching to the choir, but, you know, it, it's fine. You know, if you haven't been stocking up, start now. I mean, I'm lucky that I have, um, that I'm still in college and I can still go to food pantry. I picked up some food today, so... Like, I'm, again, I just need water. I just need to stock up on water. And I should be fine for an extended period uh, bugging situation. So, so, with that being said, uh, appreciate y'all for listening. Appreciate, appreciate you bearing with me. Uh, feel free to reach out and say what you need to say to me. Uh, you know, yeah. So, with that being said, thank you so much. And I hope y'all are staying safe and staying healthy and just, uh, keeping your head up. So, thank you.